Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, this is a History of Europe Key Battles podcast, The Anglo-Dutch Wars, part four of four. In the previous three episodes, I've talked about the reign of the Lord Protector Oliver Cromwell and his Republican government, commercial tensions with the Netherlands, which led to the First Anglo-Dutch War, his death and then the fall of that government, the restoration of the monarchy, under Charles II, and then the beginning of the Second Anglo-Dutch War. If you haven't yet listened to those three episodes, I recommend doing so for the context of this one. Or if you've listened to those already, or don't mind, then let's begin. There has been some debate among scholars as to the reasons for the outbreak of the Second Anglo-Dutch War of 1665 to 1667. Stephen Pinker cites the religious and political differences between the Anglican Royalists in England and the Calvinist Republicans that formed the ruling group in the Netherlands, each seeing the other as an ideological threat. Most historians, such as Quinton Barry and Gerard Jones, however, conclude that just as the First War, the primary motivation was commercial differences between the two countries. Jones notes that it was not Charles II who was the main proponent of anti-Dutch policy, but, quote, an aggressive combination of courtiers, junior politicians, naval officers and city merchants, which were associated with and led by James, Duke of York, end quote. As in the previous war, the English intended to force the Dutch navy out to fight by threatening their commercial shipping, then win a naval battle that destroyed their fighting capability. Then they would establish a blockade of the Dutch coast to force terms. Strategically, nothing had changed since the First War. The Dutch needed to prevent the English from gaining command of the sea. Their merchant convoys could only be adequately defended by defeating the English fleet. The first battle of the Second Anglo-Dutch War at Lowestoft began on the 3rd of June 1665. Led by James, Duke of York, the English launched an early attack at the break of dawn. The Dutch at first gave as good as they got as the fleet passed in line on opposite tacks. The turning point occurred in the early afternoon 
when a Dutch flagship suddenly blew up, killing the commander Van Obden and 400 of his crew. The Dutch fleet was now in confusion and in spite of a rearguard action suffered heavy losses. 17 ships destroyed were taken and 6,000 men killed or wounded. The historian Frank Fox gives three reasons for the Dutch defeat. Firstly, a lack of discipline among captains and admirals. Secondly, a poor use of tactics. And thirdly, the inferiority of their ships in comparison with those of the English. Dutch men of war were simply too small, too weakly timbered and too weakly armed to trade blows with the English. News of the English victory was met with euphoria in London. Samuel Pepys, who was a Member of Parliament and an Administrator of the English Navy, who is most famous today for his diaries, wrote, quote, of great news, at last newly come, that we have totally routed the Dutch, end quote. Michael de Ruyter was appointed to lead the Dutch fleet in July 1665, and he formalised new tactics. At the same time, King Charles II, concerned at some of the high-profile casualties at Lowestoft, concluded that his brother James, as heir to the throne, must no longer be risked in battle. He promoted Prince Rupert as one of the lead Navy commanders. At the end of August, de Ruyter was sent north to escort a merchant convoy home. The English failed to intercept it, partly due to bad weather. The English also failed in an attack on a fleet of Dutch ships in the Norwegian port of Bergen. 1665 was the year of the Great Plague, which killed an estimated 100,000 people, almost a quarter of London's population. De Ruyter led a blockade of the Thames estuary, but this was more of a show of strength than a serious campaign. During the winter, both sides worked hard to prepare their fleet for the next year's campaigning. By the spring of the year 1666, the Dutch had rebuilt their fleet with much heavier ships, 30 of them possessing more cannon than any Dutch ship available the year before. Louis XIV of France belatedly declared war on England in January. He calculated that in return the Dutch would acquiesce in his plan to seize and annex parts of the Spanish Netherlands. Johan de Witt found himself between a rock and a hard place. The English at sea on one side and the French ambitions for territory in the southern Spanish Netherlands on the other. The Spanish kingdom was in serious decline, and King Philip IV died in September 1665. The Dutch feared that if France annexed the Spanish Netherlands, then they would be vulnerable to further French ambitions. Louis, however, was reluctant to enter a naval war against the English, because his navy was at an early and vulnerable stage of development. At the end of May 1666, an English fleet of some 80 ships set sail, under the joint command of General Monk and a cousin of Charles II, Prince Rupert of the Rhine. Neither side was sure of the intentions of the French. The English, hearing rumours that a French fleet was on its way from the Mediterranean, decided to divide their fleet. Prince Rupert led 20 of his best sailing ships down the Channel to seek them out. And so when the remainder of the fleet under Monk encountered the Dutch fleet of De Ruyter, 
he found himself outnumbered. The English had made another mistake in stationing the fleet in the Downs. This would have been the right location if it had been strong enough to be sure of beating the Dutch. As it was, this smaller fleet found itself in a trap, seriously vulnerable to Dutch fireships, since only to the south was there an exit suitable for a fleet. As soon as news came that the Dutch were out, orders were sent to Prince Rupert to return. But he was only able to reach Monk on the third day of what turned out to be an intense battle lasting four days in total. In what remains one of the longest naval engagements in history, the Dutch inflicted significant damage on the English fleet, which lost ten ships in total, with over a thousand men killed and almost two thousand English taken prisoner. As it turned out, the French never did reach the Channel. In spite of the heavy English defeat, when the two sides fought again on the 4th of August, St James's Day off Orford Ness, in another desperately fought battle, the English achieved victory this time. Then, at the end of August, de Ruyter again went to sea with the intention of joining forces with the French, who at last were on their way. However, he was checked by an English fleet and compelled to take shelter in Boulogne and then return to his own ports. This left the French in great danger, but fortunately for them, the famous Great Fire of London, which broke out on the 12th of September 1666, disrupted British supplies and the French got away. Meanwhile, naval operations extended far beyond the North Sea. The English raided Dutch islands in the Caribbean to support their sugar industry in Jamaica. But an attempt to take the Dutch forts in West Africa were thwarted by the intervention of the Mediterranean squadron under Admiral de Ruyter. The start of the year 1667 saw a lull in fighting, but was followed by the most famous and surely most significant event in the war, a surprise attack in June 1667, known as the Raid on the Medway. Charles II, concerned about the rising cost of war, kept his ships in port, and meanwhile worked to restart negotiations for peace. Johann de Witt, however, wanted to take battle to the English. His audacious plan to send a raiding party into the River Thames at first seemed too risky, but his admirals were finally persuaded. The English should have been under no illusion that the Dutch fleet remained a powerful threat, but nevertheless failed to take measures to protect the Medway and Thames estuary. The Medway, for reference, is a major river in south-east England, which rises in Sussex and flows into Kent before emptying into the Thames estuary near Sheerness. A Dutch naval fleet commanded by de Ruyter and Willem van Ghent reached the approaches to the Thames on the 7th of June 1667. It was agreed that Van Ghent's squadron would go into the Thames while de Ruyter remained at the mouth of the Thames. On the 10th of June, Van Ghent's forces took the fort of Sheerness and the next day entered the Medway where lay the great ships of the unmanned English fleet. On the 12th they rammed through a protective sea chain and made their way to Chatham. General Monk rushed to the scene but was unable 
to prevent the Dutch from setting fire to some of England's finer ships. The Royal Oak, Royal James and Loyal London, or from capturing the Royal Charles, which was triumphantly towed to the Netherlands. King Charles II momentarily considered breaking off peace negotiations with the Dutch, but he realised he was unable to continue the war. Parliament was unlikely to provide further funding, and de Ruyter now controlled the English Channel. Trade, including the vital supply of coal for London from Newcastle, was paralysed. A treaty agreed at the Dutch town of Breda in July was not unduly onerous for the English, considering the circumstances. Both sides got to keep the conquests they had made, England retaining New York and New Jersey, and the Dutch most of the settlements in West Africa. The Navigation Act was modified to give Dutch merchant shipping greater privileges, and the requirement of the salute at sea was confined to the English Channel. Samuel Pepys wrote in his diary on the 29th of July, quote, Thus in all things, in wisdom, courage, force, the Dutch have the best of us, and so end the war with victory on their side. The kingdom never in so troubled a condition in this world as now. Nobody pleased with the peace, and yet nobody daring to wish for the continuation of the war. End quote. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Peace of Breda was hastened by developments on the European continent. When King Philip IV of Spain died in 1665, Louis claimed parts of the Spanish Netherlands and French Comte on behalf of his wife, Maria Theresa, Philip's daughter. The rather dubious pretext Louis used was the local law of devolution by which the daughter of a first marriage took precedence over the sons of a subsequent union. This gave the name of the conflict which historians use, the War of Devolution, 1667 to 1668. In May 1667, Louis sent an army into the Spanish Netherlands under the command of the experienced and well-regarded Henri Viscount of Turenne, and the next February into Franche-Comte. 
Spain, unable to offer strong resistance, faced the possibility of total defeat. This was neither in the interests of the English or the Dutch. Together with Sweden, they formed a triple alliance in 1668 to maintain the status quo. Louis XIV was furious with the Dutch, who he accused of treachery, but he was obliged to end his offensive and content himself with a small territorial gain for the time being. Louis was outraged at what he saw as the ingratitude, bad faith and insupportable vanity of the Dutch. Between 1668 and 1672, Louis openly prepared for an invasion of the Dutch Republic, who would be taught a lesson so that they would never again interfere with his conquest of the Spanish Netherlands. Louis took the necessary steps to isolate the Dutch. Firstly, he bribed the Swedes to leave the Triple Alliance, and then he negotiated a treaty with Charles II of England. In the secret Treaty of Dover, 1670, Charles promised to declare himself a Catholic and to join France in war against the Dutch. Charles believed a new war against the Dutch Republic would increase the security of his throne. The crushing of the Dutch seemed achievable as their land army was weak, and although their navy was strong, the combined English and French fleets outnumbered it. The prospect of war was unpopular in England, so Charles had difficulty obtaining the necessary money and relied on secret French subsidies. On 6 of April 1672, a year known as the Year of Disasters by the Dutch, France declared war on the United Provinces. By mid-June, Louis' soldiers had already captured 40 Dutch towns. Amsterdam was there for the taking, but Louis hesitated to send a force to take the city. Johan de Witt, who had always been in favour of friendly relations with the French, sent envoys to discuss surrender terms, offering to pay an indemnity and to concede to France all Dutch territory south of the River Mars. Louis rejected the Dutch offers, confident that even greater concessions could be extracted, so the fighting continued. However, French aggression provoked the Holy Roman Emperor, Leopold I and the Elector of Brandenburg to mobilise their armies to help the Dutch. In the meantime, the Dutch checked the invaders by opening their dikes and flooding the countryside. On the 4th of August 1672, Johan de Witt resigned from his position of Grand Pensionary of Holland. There was much public anger of his actions. On the 20th of August, he and his brother Cornelis were murdered by a mob. Already before this, in July, effective power in the Republic had fallen into the hands of William III, Prince of Orange. William was elected as Stadtholder of most of the seven Dutch provinces and took leadership of the country's resistance. Indeed, he was to devote the rest of his life to the salvation of Holland and the frustration of the ambitions of Louis XIV. Unlike the First and Second Anglo-Dutch Wars, which came about as a result of collective pressure from merchants or nobles, the Third was entirely down to King Charles II. He deliberately sought to take advantage of the French invasion of the Netherlands to reduce the Dutch to a state of total and helpless submission. He showed an increasing inclination to bypass Parliament 
and could do so more easily with financial support from the French. To his domestic opponents, his actions were portrayed as doing the bidding of a French monarch, instead of working for the best interest of his own subjects. On the other hand, there was a popular desire for revenge for the humiliation in the Medway. The English strategy was to combine with the French navy and achieve command of the sea by destroying the Dutch fleet. The first engagement, even before the official declaration of war, was an attack by an English fleet under the command of Robert Holmes on a Dutch convoy, arriving from Smyrna in the Mediterranean. The operation was an expensive failure, as all the valuable Dutch vessels escaped and two of the English ships were badly damaged. The first main battle of the Third Anglo-Dutch War was at Sol Bay on the 7th of June 1672. The Dutch had hoped to repeat the success of the raid on the Medway, and a squadron under Van Ghent sailed up the Thames in May, but discovered that Sheerness Fort was now too well prepared to pass. The Dutch main fleet came too late to prevent a joining of the English and French fleets. It followed the Allied fleet to the north, which, unaware of the Dutch, put in at Sol Bay to refit. On the 7th of June, the Allies were caught by surprise and were thrown into disarray when the Dutch fleet suddenly arrived on the horizon in the early morning. The French fleet, whether by accident or design, steered south and limited its action to long-distance fire. Losses were heavy on both sides, and both sides claimed victory. In truth, though, the Dutch commander, de Reuter, had won an important strategic victory, having ended the threat of invasion of the Dutch coast. He destroyed the ship, the Royal James, and put out of action six of the largest ships in the English fleet, while losing only three smaller ships of his own. Charles's hope for a quick knockout blow had failed. He ran out of money and faced considerable domestic opposition to continuing the war. In the campaign of the next year, 1673, the Allied strategy was to seek out de Reuter's fleet, and by defeating it or driving it into a port to be blockaded, the sea would be clear for an invading army to land on the coast of Zealand. Charles then hoped to insist on a peace that fully satisfied English demands. The superior size of the Allied force forced de Reuter to adopt a defensive strategy, stationing his fleet in the Schoenewald, an anchorage protected by shoals near the mouth of the river Scheldt. The Allies considered sending in fire ships, but there was sufficient room in the Schoenewald for the Dutch ships to manoeuvre and to avoid them. In the engagement which followed, neither side lost any ships, but the Allies suffered considerable damage. It was a tactical victory for the Dutch, as de Reuter showed that he could use the Schoenewald as a safe haven. He could lie there, sorting out whenever he saw an opportunity to attack the Allies. This he did on the 14th of June, taking Allied ships by surprise and forcing them to retire from the Dutch coast for repairs. In August, the Dutch fleet was forced to defend the island of Texel in North Holland, and clashed with the Allies in open battle. 
De Reuter managed to obtain a tactical draw which implied a strategic Dutch victory because the damaged English fleet could no longer continue operations. The failure of the naval campaign in the summer of 1673 completed the English disillusionment with the war and with the alliance with the French, who they blamed for this failure. Parliament argued that the French had failed to provide the necessary support in the battles and rejected the King's pleas for further financing of the campaign. The Dutch organised a propaganda campaign which argued that the war and the French alliance were part of a sinister plot to establish Catholicism and arbitrary government in the British Isles. Charles, without the finances to continue the campaign, had no choice but to agree a peace, the Treaty of Westminster, on the 19th of February 1674. Charles had achieved nothing in the war which he had gone out of his way to cause, except antagonising many of his subjects. The Dutch agreed to salute the English flag as a matter of courtesy, but did not concede English sovereignty of the sea. No concession was made by the Dutch in respect of their right to fish in the North Sea. As J.R. Jones sums up in his book, The Anglo-Dutch Wars of the 17th Century, Quote, the Third War was a bogus affair from its aggressive start to its whimpering end. End quote. The principal reason for the failure of the Dutch Wars from an English perspective was the loss of confidence in the honesty and integrity of their king and his ministers. They saw the war aimed as much against their own liberties and religion as against the Dutch. Three years after the end of the war in 1677, the English and Dutch nations came a step closer when William III, the Stadtholder, married the elder daughter of the Duke of York, later King James II of England. William believed this would move Charles away from his pro-French policies and also gave him the possibility of inheriting the English throne. As for the land war against France, the Dutch refused to surrender and resisted strongly under the leadership of William III. The French withdrew from the Republic in 1674, and instead of swallowing the whole of the Spanish Netherlands, were only able to chip away at the border of Flanders and Hainaut. The conflict continued until 1678, when the Peace of Nijmegen was agreed. The United Provinces regained territory they lost in the war, and were given a favourable commercial treaty with France. Neither the Holy Roman Emperor nor the Spanish were in a position to pursue war with France without Dutch support, and had to let France keep some conquered territory. Strategic towns on the Netherlands frontier, the province of Franche Comté, and lands along the French frontier of Lorraine and Alsace. King Louis XIV thus confirmed his position as the most powerful monarch in Christian Europe. The Dutch also proved they were able to defend their territory from both land and sea. During the Third Anglo-Dutch War, there were major clashes between ships of the two countries in Asian waters. Yet these actions were too distant to significantly influence the outcomes of the conflict in Europe. The Dutch East India Company thanks to their dominant position in Asia, more than held its own against its English and French rivals. In the long term, however, the period marked the high points of the Dutch Republic. 
For all its strengths in commercial shipping and its successes during the wars, it remained in a vulnerable geographical position with a relatively small population. A.T. van Dersen in A History of the Low Countries writes that the Dutch Republic did not have the size or resources to be able to play the role of a great power, and in time it became clear it was living beyond its means. Quote, Trading and shipping were not in decline, but instead of growth there was economic stagnation and retrenchment. The Republic had to accept the fact that its international competitors, backed by stronger governments and possessing greater potential, were breaking open the Dutch lock-on trade. Not only politically, but economically, the Republic would have to accept its status as a second-rate power. Yet for the Dutch still today, the victory on the Medway and the Treaty of Breda symbolise a highly significant national moment, one which marks the zenith of their maritime strength. The person most closely linked to these successes is Michael de Ruyter. In the 2004 Dutch television programme, where the audience were asked to vote for the greatest Dutchman of all time, de Ruyter came at very credible seventh place. Credited most of all with the Battle of Medway and successful defence of the Dutch coast in 1673. A statue of him in his birthplace of Flushing was the first for a naval hero. And in 2015, a feature film was even made about him, which covers the period of the Anglo-Dutch Wars, when the homeland is threatened from all sides, both by foreign enemies and by internal party struggles. Before the Anglo-Dutch Wars, the popular belief of economics was mercantilism, a theory where the amount of wealth in existence was relatively static. Mercantilists argued that one country could become wealthier only by depriving others of their share, and that this was achieved by using the machinery of government to win a larger share. Policies used to achieve this were the amassing of gold by boosting exports, limiting imports and prohibiting the movement of gold out of the country. These were the arguments used by Charles II for justification of the Third War, but they were seen by opponents as cover for increasing the power of the Crown and its ministers at the direct expense of Parliament and the nation. There was also the additional suspicion that part of Charles's agenda was the promotion of Catholicism. The mercantilist argument was also weakened from the late 1650s when colonial trade expanded, of which Britain was to become the main beneficiary. The foundation of Britain's later impact on the international stage were being laid, especially the increasing wealth from its North American colonies and the development of its naval power. You've been listening to A History of Europe, Key Battles Podcast. As always, it's great to hear from you on the Facebook page, or you can write to me directly, car.historyeurope.net. If you would like to support the show and get episodes a week in advance and a few bonus episodes, then please join up on patreon.com slash historyeurope. Today's music has been by the English composer Henry Purcell. Firstly, a piece called Chaconnet in G minor, 
And to end for today, the Gordian Knot Untied. I hope you enjoy. And I hope you can join me next time when I'll be talking about the Siege of Vienna of 1683. Until then, all the best and goodbye. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. So, Robert, tell the people, what's a pretendian? It's just what it sounds like, Angel. A pretend Indian. Someone who fakes being one of us? Someone who impersonates a native. We're talking about real scammers and con artists. There are pretendians teaching at universities, pretendians running governments, pretendians in Hollywood. On our new podcast, Pretendians, we'll tell you the incredible story of these jaw-dropping frauds. Who are they? Why do they do it? And how the heck do they keep getting away with it? Listen to Pretendians on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.